0: Welcome into the All of the Above podcast. Uh, My name is Bryce Harrison, and our guest today on the podcast is Sarah Gilliam. If you have been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know if me and Sarah are on the podcast, that means we're probably talking about books today. Yes, sir. And you're in luck, because we are. Uh, So first, before we get started, Sarah, I was told by John Hyatt that I have to deliver this message to you (laughs) you on air, which is that gum is life. (laughs) So hopefully that means something to you, but gum is life.
1: Thank you, John, for that message. That means a lot. Um,
0: Can you enlighten the listeners to what gum is life means?
1: Unfortunately, I can. So as like a middle schooler who desperately wanted to appear cool in conversations with older kids, um, one day at summer camp, I was talking to some kids, and somebody said, man, I just really love gum. And somebody else was like, yeah, man, gum is my favorite. And me just trying to, like, join in, I was like, yeah, gum is my life. And that struck a chord with them. They did not find me as cool as I had hoped for, um, for thinking that gum was life. They, in fact, were like, I think you need to get a life.
0: <laughs> when, uh, when you tell that story, I imagine Piper in my head just saying... <laughs> Gum is life.
1: Gum is um, life. That's
0: how it plays out in my head. I had uh, my youngest brother, one one Thanksgiving dinner, just kind of pushed his plate back from the table and with a contented sigh, just looked at all of us and said, I could dance on stuffing. <laughs> and we were like, I think you mean you could live off of stuffing, but, um, but now, now- would it, you
1: physically dance on stuffing? Yes, it's crazy.
0: To this day, every Thanksgiving dinner, somebody has to say, I could dance on stuffing. Um, It it happens all the time. So we are really excited about uh, today's episode. We are actually going to talk through a theme uh, through literature, a theme that was a a term that was coined by Tolkien called eucatastrophe. Uh, So Sarah, what is eucatastrophe?
1: Yeah, eucatastrophe, this delightful little word. Um, So the dictionary does actually define this term. As a sudden and favorable resolution of events in a story or a happy ending. I personally believe this is a terrible definition for you, catastrophe. So Lame. go and find your own personal dictionary and cross this definition out. Um, Tolkien, who is the coiner of this term, actually calls it a happy turn in a story, which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. Um, and he argues that this is actually the highest function of fairy tales.
0: And he, he basically created the term by taking the, the Greek prefix for good and just putting it on the front of catastrophe. So you catastrophe is basically...
1: A good catastrophe. A good
0: catastrophe. At I love the, it. Usually at the end of a story, but somewhere in, in the storytelling story telling process, a, a good catastrophe. Um, Tolkien was also super fascinated by Norse mythology. Um, and if you know... Norse mythology, you know, that kind of the co- final culmination of it is this cyclical apocalypse called Ragnarok, where all of life descends into chaos. And so for Tolkien, Eucatastrophe was a kind of Christian interruption, a, a mm. diversion of Christian joy right on the precipice of Ragnarok. Uh, his fairy tales change course to a good catastrophe to a, to a happy ending. Um, but now maybe how is you catastrophe different from how we would just think of a generic happy ending is, is you catastrophe simply happily ever after?
1: It is not, I would say. Um, so I think one thing it talks about is a sudden turn. Um, and, and that is important. Like all hope is lost. We've accepted our fate and then suddenly, or behold, we looked. Um, and then I think really it's the thing that infuses the protagonist with hope so that they can get to the end, um, or to the end of whatever situation they're in. So it is it is distinctly different from just a happy ending.
0: Yeah, I, I, when, like, happy endings typically is kind of your, um, your epilogue, right? The happy ending is what plays out at the very mm-hmm. end after the climax or as you catastrophe tends to be those events that lead up to the climax mm-hmm. it's kind of part of that building
1: yeah. uh,
0: climactic action mm-hmm. um and the the tragedy is an important part of it. Like Mm -hmm. you can't just have a happy ending. You have to have, you have to be on the brink of tragedy in order to have you catastrophe. Uh, So Tolkien's friend, C.S. Lewis actually said uh, in, in surprised by joy, he says, joy is distinct from pleasure in that it must have the stab, the pang, the inconsolable longing. Um, So, the two of them were friends and shared thoughts on a lot of these things. Um, and Lewis's idea is that joy is, not, is different from pleasure, that there has to be grief. There has to be mm-hmm. a, a suffering that precedes it. So you, catastrophe similar has to be preceded by near tragedy.
1: Yes. And, I mean, that joy and hope is so much fuller and richer when it's known sorrow and like and has known this is what could have been my end and instead here i am
0: yeah and there's there's like i think you said before like there has to be it has to ha- be a sudden turn mm-hmm. and if there's not a if there's not something to turn from then there's no there's no sudden turn so uh, uh, I mean tolkien's the one who coins this term so a, a typical example of eucatastrophe would be something like uh, frodo showing up to mount doom ready to cast the ring into the fire and at the last minute turning around, power of the ring overcomes him and he's he looks at Sam and says, No, he's he will not destroy the ring. Hmm. Um Here's Sam's. has where got,
1: I confess I haven't read Lord of the Rings, but this makes me want to. It makes it puts it higher on my list.
0: As long as it's on your
1: list, it's then we
0: we'll, that'll that'll suffice for now. I
1: just need to get a couple toddlers out of the house.
0: <sighs> yeah. Yeah, that would make it make it harder. Um but in that in that moment, like tears are streaming down Sam's face and it's like Everything that we've worked for is now mm. lost. Um, you don't know what's going to happen, uh, and then obviously Gollum comes around the corner and bites the ring off of Frodo's hand and gets shoved into the fires of Mount Doom, destroying the ring with him. And that's kind of the other unique element of U catastrophe that's different from happy ending is that typically the obstacles, mm. the the means of the tragedy become the means to the triumph yeah uh what would what would be another some other ways that we see kind of the means of tragedy leading to triumph
1: let's see what did we talk we talked about Dumbledore's death um at the end of Half-Blood Prince it kind of uh brings about the events um this Harry Potter for none of you what are they Potterheads is that yeah what yeah Potterheads <laughs> for none of you for you non-Potterheads out there um, it brings about the events that lead Harry, Ron, and Hermione on the journey to destroy all the Horcruxes. Tons of spoilers, by the way, in this episode. So we all of
0: but all of everything we're referencing has been out long enough that yes, we can we can do
1: spoilers with including a good Lord of the Rings, which I should have read by now.
0: Yes, um, yeah, and so even even something like. Um, Death of Dumbledore leads to Voldemort's rise to power, makes it look like everything's lost, um, and it's actually kind of Voldemort's overconfidence and feeling like he mm-hmm. has won the day that leads him to to kill Harry and in yeah. the end destroy the final Horcrux and and um, seal victory for the good guys. Yeah. Um, so what what looked like the triumph of evil becomes the means to to evil's own, evil's own end.
1: And I think that's a really important aspect here is it looks like evil is about to win. It is that sinking feeling of like evil is about to reign. Um, and then the sudden turn that's saying, no, like good will always triumph over evil in the end.
0: And, and we see this woven through lots of classic literature so again tolkien's friend lewis is going to use this in in the lion the witch in the wardrobe um the the white witch kills aslan he is dead on the stone table she's yeah.
1: dancing over his grave literally
0: and it looks like it looks like she has finally conquered all of narnia um but we learned that it's it's Aslan's death that mm-hmm. frees Edmund the Traitor and actually brings about the the White Witch's demise. Mm. Um, and it's not even just books either. This is this goes across all forms of storytelling. So when we think of movie making, um, the classic example that comes to mind for me is the Battle of the First Death Star when the when Luke's kind of in the trench heading to. Fire his torpedoes and every other x-wing has been kind of blasted out of the sky and darth vader drops in right behind him and locks him in his sights uh and right before he's about to pull the trigger millennium falcon comes out of nowhere and han solo is returned and that's why han solo is the best but um (laughs) sends darth vader spinning out luke's able to destroy the death star um, or for you Moana fans. Oh yeah. Um,
1: this is more, more in my wheelhouse. Moana. Yes.
0: Yes. What, what can I say except you're welcome? <laughs> um, the the climax of Moana she shows up to return the heart of Tafiti and gets past Taka the angry mm. lava monster uh, but Takah destroys Maui's fish hook and Moana realizes Tafiti's gone and is not there and Taka kind of turns and looks at Moana and it's you can pretty much tell like this is the end of the story everything's everything's done uh, and then Moana has this realization that Actually, is Te Fiti. Yeah. Um and the thing they thought they were fighting
1: against—yeah—is
0: mm. actually the one they're trying to save, um, and it kind of brings about the final resolution. Um, so, yeah, so this is this is kind of a broader principle through more than just literature.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I Actually, and um, thinking about this and preparing kept coming back to a piece of music. Um, Probably some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I think it was 2014 that they made a live-action Cinderella. I will say that this is Disney's best live-action movie so far, and anyone can at me about that. Um, But it just has this amazing score, Um, and sort of the main um, score for the movie is called Courage and Kindness. I think the composer's name, Patrick Doyle. and it just for I, I know very few musical terms. Um, so I don't know, like for the first several sections of music, it just is sort of delightfully melancholy, much like Cinderella's life. Um, she's enslaved, basically, and she's um, living in servitude or her parents are gone. Um, but she still maintains this joy about her. Um, so yes, it kind of sounds like that for the first several sections. It's beautiful. And then all of a sudden there's this very pregnant pause before the music picks back up. And the only way I can describe it is like just being filled with hope. It makes me weep in public places. Like if I'm sitting at Starbucks listening to it, I've had to stop (laughs) because I'll just be sitting at a table by myself weeping. Um, And to me, like sort of that, the crescendo, like a catastrophe, is very much a crescendo of a story, like this dramatic turn um, and it's, it's just something that I kept coming back to. So everybody do yourself a favor and take four minutes and go and listen to Courage and Kindness because it's just, it's beautiful.
0: That's great. Um, so yeah, so this, this is a theme that, that runs deep, that runs deep through storytelling, whether we're stories, telling stories through books or, um, or film, or or even song, you uh, catastrophe has worked its way into the very fabric of storytelling. Uh, that being said, we do love books. We do, um, and so Sarah, what would be what would be like a favorite example of yours of you catastrophe in the world of literature?
1: Okay, um, this is like my very favorite. It's my favorite story of all time. Probably, again, if you're listening to this, you've probably heard me talk about it, but it's The Giver by Lois Lowry. You probably read it in middle school. I read it for the first time in middle school and probably have read it a 100 times since. I'm sad if you haven't read it. I'm actually about spoiling this ending for anyone, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I'm going to try and keep this really brief, like summarizing the story, because it is important to the, the crescendo of all this, but... Um, Basically, Jonas is the main character, um, and he lives in a community. This novel is futuristic, kind of dystopian. I inherited a love of anything post-apocalyptic and dystopian from Big Jim Slice, so go ask him about that. Um
0: precision of language, please. precision
1: of language, please. Yes. Um, so in this community, all fear, pain, war, and hatred has been totally eliminated because they've eliminated human choice altogether. And so we meet Jonas, the main character when he is at his ceremony of twelves. So with each year they go through a ceremony and like basically you developmentally move to the next stage in life. Um, everything in the community is chosen for you. Your spouse is assigned you um children are assigned to you. You don't actually bear your own children. And at age twelve, you are assigned the role you will play in the community for your whole life. Because um,
0: we all know once you reach age twelve, you have yes, arrived.
1: You've arrived. Yeah. Actually at the end of the ceremony of twelves, they say thank you for your childhood because like signifying it is done.
0: <laughs> it's it's uh, funny to me that it's written for like 12-year-olds who read this and be like, yes, that is right. That is the way, that's how society should work. When you're 12, you're you there. Just,
1: yeah, you know everything. <laughs> so yeah, so Jonas um, is given the assignment of receiver, which means he'll be spending all of his time with the giver. Um, and the giver's job is that he keeps all the memories. So he has every memory of life as it was before they went to what they call sameness. So they've removed all choice because when humans make choices, they make mistakes. And so he begins to inherit all of these memories from the the giver. Um, And so not only does he start to encounter for the first time the idea of love, um, he starts to see colors for the first time. He sees a beautiful sunrise for the first time, but he also experiences for the first time the pain of a skinned knee or actual war. So he like gets to actually see battle as it as it truly is. But then he realizes that maintaining this way of life actually means um, removing like humanness from humans. It means that they dispose of the elderly, the disabled, and any young who can't actually keep up developmentally. And so, meanwhile, his father is. A nurturer. So basically, he takes care of babies that have been born during their first year of life until they're assigned to a family. And he has one child named Gabriel, who, it's not, a, it's not an accident that I have a son named Gabriel. Um, and Gabriel is just sickly and can't seem to catch up. And so eventually, his father says, we're going to have to eliminate him. And at this point, Jonas has realized what it means to eliminate him. So he conspires to kidnap Gabriel and escape with him to try and get him to safety. And so then the next section of the book is just him basically traveling on his own with an infant trying to figure out how to get to safety. And he has to deal with all the elements. He has to deal with... Um, I think he goes through like a like an extremely hot desert and then enters like just this frozen tundra. So he's in knee-deep snow. He's tired. He doesn't have enough food and water. And essentially he comes to the end of himself. He's like, I can't go any further. Death is imminent. When I die, it means this child dies, and this is where my favorite you catastrophe occurs. Um, Let me find it real quick. Sorry. He reached the place where the hill crested, and he could feel the ground under his snow-covered feet become level. It would not be uphill anymore. We're almost there, Gabriel, he whispered, feeling quite certain without knowing why. I remember this place, Gabe, and it was true, but it was not a grasping of a thin and burdensome recollection. This was different. It was something that he could keep, a memory of his own. He hugged Gabriel and rubbed him briskly, warming him to keep him alive. The wind was bitterly cold, the snow swirled, blurring his vision. But somewhere ahead, through the blinding storm, he knew that there was warmth and light. Using his final strength and special knowledge that was deep inside him, Jonas found the sled that was waiting for them at the top of the hill. So, he just comes upon a sled. I love that something so ordinary brings about Jonas's redemption. Numbly, his hands fumbled for the rope. He settled himself on the sled and hugged Gabe close. The hill was steep, but the snow was powdery and soft, and soft, and he knew that this time there would be no ice, no fall, no pain. Inside his freezing body, his heart surged with hope, and they started down. Um, Jonas felt himself losing consciousness, and with his whole being, willed himself to stay upright atop the sled, clutching Gabriel and keeping him safe. The runners sliced through the snow, and the wind whipped at his face as they sped in a straight line through an, through an incision that seemed to lead to a fi- the final destination, the f- place that he had always felt was waiting elsewhere that held their future and their past it's so good (laughs) Um, basically I think we were talking about this earlier there are some that would say this is a metaphor for Jonas's death and I refuse to accept that Um, what I love so much is uh, I think a little bit later he talks about um, knowing that there's a house at the bottom of the hill knowing that there's someone there waiting for him and I always remembered it as a kid as him seeing a house at the bottom of the hill but it wasn't even that like he just felt this sudden surge of hope and confidence that there at the bottom of the hill someone is waiting for me
0: but there's something there's something like it's almost the hope is so poignant and so real that you also are assured that the house is there yes. and so when you remember it in your memory you remember them arriving at the house because it was it was that realized
1: that must be it it's so good, um,
0: and even the sudden turn from like the harshness of the elements to the snow being soft, mm-hmm. um, something like that this just is tells something you delightful
1: that, and not something that's going to, yes.
0: Me. And in that sudden moment, everything has changed. Um, everything has changed and it's been changed by this sudden swell of hope.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, that's great. Um, so, so if this is, if this idea of eucatastrophe is something that's all through stories, um, we can't. We can't shake it. It's it's there, um, and it's beautiful. Uh, like it is, like Tolkien says, it is a, a joy that that brings us to tears. Mm-hmm. Uh, why why does it move us so much? Why do we love catastrophe?
1: Yeah, um, this is something that I think is really neat about creation. Like, there's no way that all of these writers went to the same writing class and sat underneath the same teacher. Who taught them this is how you bring about a good ending? This is how you really um, cause your reader to just well up with hope and tears and joy, an intangible joy. Um, I think it is woven into our very being. I heard one time Andrew Peterson say that our hearts are made for stories. Mm. Um, And he was, it was at a homeschool convention where he was sharing about how the Lord had used story to bring him to himself, not even like the story of the Bible just the very idea of the stories he had loved growing up. And he's like, there has to be a creator there that's involved in that. Um, And why do we love this as believers? I think because we as believers, um, we enjoy the benefits of the greatest eucatastrophe of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the greatest fairy story come true, where every wrong is righted and every desire is turned and fulfilled. And Every doubt is made whole, um, and a Christ child who came after 400 years of silence, and then who died sinless and was resurrected after three days, um, Tolkien describes his coming as the eucatastrophe of creation, and his resurrection as the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. And for me personally, like my salvation, the mu- moving of my heart from darkness and destruction to life and wholeness, is the eucatastrophe of, eucatastrophe of my own existence. Um, and so basically it imbues me with hope that at the end of all this, at the end of life's difficulties, um, Jesus' return will again uh, be the U catastrophe at the end of the age when all sad things are made untrue. Um, so even, like it's important for me to remember that when the Bible repeatedly calls me to kind of the slow game, faithfulness day in and day out, I must not forget that all of our hope is placed in a sudden turn of events, um, which will fill me with hope to carry on through doldrums and difficulties.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. Um, The idea that the eucatastrophe is uniquely Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and, And, I mean, Tolkien himself even said that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe in the greatest fairy story. Um, saying that the reason it produ- produced that emotion um, was because that it was Christian joy, hmm. um, and 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 that it produces tears because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are at one, reconciled. Um, just a, a beautiful picture of what it of why you catastrophe um, really culminates in the Christian story.
1: Yeah,
0: and I think we see kind of resurrection is the pinnacle of that, but I think even across the biblical narrative, we really see eucatastrophe as the shape of deliverance, um, yeah. whether it's uh, the Israelites with their back to the Red Sea, um, with Pharaoh's army crashing down on them, um, and nothing but like terror and panic stricken, and well, this is the end of all of God's promises um, until the the waters part, and they walk across on dry land. Mm-hmm. Um, we see, and, and then again, kind of at the end of the story, uh, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is Revelation five, when John's given this beautiful vision of of heaven, sees the one who sits on the throne and the scroll about to be opened that will enact the God's. uh, providential plan for the end of all things uh but no one's found worthy to open the scroll and they search the earth and above the earth and under the earth and no one's found worthy and so john weeps because it looks like all is lost there's there's no hope if the scroll can't be opened then there's no hope these things will not be enacted and uh the current reign of terror will will persist um and then they he's told to weep no more um, he turns and sees the the lion of Judah the lamb that stands as if it's been slain uh, Jesus himself walk up to the throne take the scroll from from the Lord and and enact the end the end of the story enact the happy ending yeah. um, and so we really see you catastrophe as the the shape of deliverance yeah and I really like what you, what you said at the beginning that it's um it's something that we, we we're not taught good storytelling sure there's along the way as you mm. become a writer as you become a storyteller um, there's there's tricks of the trade that you pick up on but there's something innate within us that that resonates with with truth um,
1: yeah we can't help but want to see good triumph over evil because we have that hope in ourselves like not in ourselves we have that hope ourselves that in the end, Goodwill will win the day. Um, and as we want to look forward to that future hope, we love, we can't help as humans, but to love to see it in story and in everyday life. It's why we love all of those silly Facebook stories that go around and it's like, you know, person overcomes horrible accident and becomes an Olympic runner or something like that. Like we want to see um, sad things be untrue mm. and this is just like a tiny glimpse of what is to come for us for the great good that is to come
0: i uh i was reminded of that actually like two days ago i was watching uh, coleman my three-year-old play with his action figures and he had wolverine and black panther in his hands and i was watching him act out this story and wolverine walked up and said What are you doing here? Get out of my way. (laughs) And Black Panther said, I will not move. And Wolverine responds, Thanos said you killed my best friend, and now I'm gonna kill you. And Black Panther says, No, I didn't kill your best friend. I am your best friend. <laughs> and then the two of them embraced and went off to go defeat Thanos together. Man, what and I a was
1: storyteller like, Coleman is. I was
0: like, I would watch that.
1: Uh, totally. Like, let's
0: make that into a movie. I would watch that. But that's those are the type of, like, archetypes and themes of, like, enemies – reconciled uh to go vanquish evil like Mm -hmm. what seemed to be um you know an irreconcilable difference at the you know subverted and that actually being the the means to to victory and it's like Coleman gets it it's it's innate we we get it it. well sarah uh thanks so much for for being on the podcast and for those of you who who don't know this was actually sarah's idea so if you enjoyed the Episode on You Catastrophe, you can thank Sarah Gilliam and remind her that gum is life. Gum is life. <laughs> Thanks for listening.